We are continuing in our series in Galatians this morning, so if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. If you're using the black Bible that's in the pew in front of you, it is on page 975, 975. I was just thinking while we were singing, and thank you musicians for leading us in song, um, I love being a part of a church that sings together, and uh, it has been well said that the most important instrument in here is the voice of the congregation, and so I just love that I am a part, that we are a part of a church that sings together. I also love that we are a church that takes seriously the preaching of the Word of God, and so that's where we're turning our attention to now. Uh, I would invite you to stand in honor of God's Word as we read Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. We are approaching the end of the book. We're not quite there yet, but Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? Father, I think of the song that we uh, just sang, Lord, I need you. And Lord, I keenly sense that and am aware of that this morning as I stand uh, here before your people to bring your word to them. And God, in a sense, we all need you. We, we need you to work in our hearts. We need you to uncover sin. We need you to encourage us by your spirit. We need you to enable us to see things from your word and then to apply them to our lives and So God, I just pray that you'll be with us this morning. Please help us. We are a needy people, but we are thankful that you are a strong God. And so God, I pray that you'll be with us over the course of the next 40 minutes or so. I pray that you will help us. Pray that you'll help me to communicate your word in a way that's helpful for my friends. And I pray for all of us as we sit under your word that we would give careful attention to it. And that we would seek ways in our lives to live in accordance with it. God, I pray that you would bless us this morning as we seek your grace through the preaching and the hearing of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sure that most of you have flown before. I am told that it is one of the safest ways uh, to travel. And that must simply be from a statistical perspective sort of standpoint. But on July the 23rd, 1983, there was a near catastrophe in the world of air travel. Air Canada Flight 143 was slated to travel from Montreal to Edmonton. And the crew that day had a combined flying experience of 23,000 hours, the pilots did. And so things should have run fairly smoothly. 
But partway through their journey from Montreal to Edmonton, when the plane was at 41,000 feet in the air at cruising altitude, uh, things started to kind of go haywire. Okay, so an alarm went off, and then one of the engines went out. Okay, uh, and then shortly afterwards, the other engine followed suit. So imagine that you are these pilots, you're at cruising altitude, uh, you're not even anywhere near halfway, you're, you're not even halfway to your destination, and both of your engines have just gone out. There was also uh, a loss of electricity to the entire plane, and, which resulted in most of the instrument panels in the cockpit turning off. So the pilots scramble, they perform some quick calculations, and they decide to perform an emergency landing at a sort of defunct military base nearby. The plane is landed successfully, and so the disaster was averted, but what in the world went wrong? Well, if you were alive back then, then you know that Canada was around the time of switching from imperial measurements to metric ones. And that was particularly so in the aviation industry, and so the crew that was responsible for refueling the plane had filled the plane with 22,000 pounds of fuel, as opposed to 22,000 kilograms of fuel, okay? If you don't like doing measurements in your mind, let me just tell you that that's about half of the necessary fuel for, to get them from Montreal to Edmonton. The error was not caught, and thus the plane took off. Now, there were problems that occurred in the air. The alarm went off, like I said. Both engines turned off. Uh, the electricity shut down, and the instrument panels went down as well. But those were merely symptoms of the core underlying issue of them running out of fuel, and so if the pilots had tried to address some of the symptomatic issues without understanding the root cause of it all, they would have surely plummeted to their death. And you see, as there were malfunctions in the plane, there were also malfunctions going on in the Galatian church. The people were lacking in love for one another. They were failing to serve each other. And in fact, they were biting and devouring one another. Rather than caring for each other, they were comparing themselves with one another. And a sort of spiritual one-upmanship was taking place. All of this obviously was wreaking havoc upon the congregations of Galatia. So here's the situation. They, they were not getting along. They were biting and devouring one another. They were comparing themselves. They were trying to one-up one each other in terms of spirituality. And it was a mess. And Paul simply could have wrote a, a post-it note to them and said, Hey, smarten up and get along. He could have written a letter that said, or a, a note that simply said, Be nice and be kind. But Paul understood that the problem ran far deeper than that. You see, because for the Apostle Paul, when a people treat themselves like that, that he understands that the problem is not ultimately behavior, but it's belief. And so for Paul to write a note that said, be nice and be kind, would have been like the pilots trying to turn on the lights in, the, in their cockpit without addressing the fact that they had run out of fuel. But you see, we do find a sort of be nice and be kind sort of note in our passage. Look with me to verse 10. Remember, the people are not getting along. They're biting and devouring one another. And Paul says this, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. But what we need to note here is that this sort of be nice and be kind verse comes not at the very beginning of his letter, not as the sum total of it, but at the very end of his letter. 
And that is because, again, the Apostle Paul understood the problem in the Galatian church was not fundamentally about behavior, but rather about belief. Okay? Uh, And so let me try and explain this for us. Um, If you remember, in the earlier parts of Galatians, Paul belabored the point that a person is justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. That a person is accepted by God based simply on their trust in Jesus. And that's why he tries to blow to smithereens the idea, any notion that a person can be accepted or improve their standing before God based on what they do. We call that works-based religion. And Paul tries to blow that to smithereens, and he belabors the point that a person is made right with God based on simple trust in Jesus alone. Okay? That's important. That's important because it is by trusting in Jesus alone and being made right with God that a person receives the Spirit. You see, it is by our trusting in Jesus that we become one with him, and therefore we receive the Holy Spirit of God. Okay? Being made right with God by faith alone is important because that's how we receive the Spirit. But it doesn't end there. It is important that we receive the Spirit because it is only by the Spirit that we can truly love one another. Melissa, I won't step on you, don't worry. Okay? It is only by receiving the Spirit and walking by the Spirit that we can truly love one another. In other words, it is only if that chain takes place that the problems in the Galatian churches can fix themselves. If anything in this chain malfunctions, then the whole thing comes crumbling down. And this is why for five chapters, Paul has been belaboring the point that people need to be justified by faith in Christ alone, and, and he has been belaboring the point of how to receive the Spirit and walk by the Spirit, and that is by faith, because he wants to get here. He wants people to be nice and to be kind, but he understands that in order for them to do that, they need the Spirit. And so that's why Paul has belabored that for five or so chapters. Remember this about the letter to the Galatians. Paul wrote a letter, not a post-it note. This morning's sermon will consist of two Ps. Okay, two Ps. The first is the principle of sowing and reaping in verses 7 and 8. The principle of sowing and reaping in verses 7 and 8. And then the practice of spirit people in verses 9 and 10. The practice of spirit people in verses 9 and 10. In verse 7, Paul states sort of a universal law which governs the universe. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And this law applies kind of in the physical or material realm, and it also applies in the spiritual or moral realm. Okay? Um, At the risk of um, insulting your intelligence, let me just kind of state some obvious things, okay? Um, If we want to plant tomatoes in our garden in the backyard, we get what kind of seeds? Tomato seeds, yeah. Tomato seeds produce tomato plants, okay? Uh, Or whatever you call them. Um, and then if you're wanting to be fit and healthy, um, then you're not going to stuff your face with Twinkies and you're not going to continually avoid the gym. Okay. If you want to be fit and healthy, you need to do some things and that's not to stuff your face with Twinkies. If you want to do well in school, kids and youth, then you need to put the time in to complete your assignments and to study hard for exams, right? You reap what you sow. And then, um, 
For your parents, if you want a healthy relationship with your kids, then you need to invest the seed of your time, your affection, and your energy into those relationships so that they'll be healthy, right? Now, none of these things is, um, should be understood in some sort of mechanical, foolproof, okay, if I do this, then I can forecast my future sort of way, but just as a general principle that describes the world in which we live, we will reap what we sow. It's a general principle, okay? Paul then takes that principle and applies it to the flesh-spirit discussion that he began in chapter 5 in verse 8. Look with me to verse 8. It says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And we see the parallel in this verse, don't we? We, we see on the one hand that the one who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. On the other hand, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There are parallel statements depicting two totally different trajectories, and so we're going to take a look at each part in turn. Notice that it says that the one who sows. The one who sows. Okay, this is really, really important for us. Paul's talking here about a way of life, the course of one's life, the direction of one's life. It's going to become important because he's not saying, hey, if you're generally a person who sows to the Spirit, but you sow to the flesh from time to time, um, you're headed for eternal corruption. Okay, that's important for us to know. Paul is talking about that which generally characterizes a man or a woman, the one who sows a sort of a continual, habitual sort of way of life. Second, note the flesh and the spirit. Note the flesh and the spirit, and we've talked a lot about the spirit and the flesh in uh, previous sermons, so I'm not going to go into depth with that, Um, but perhaps we can think of the flesh and the spirit as two separate fields. Okay, so there is the field of the spirit, and there is the field of the flesh, and the seeds are our thoughts words, and our actions, okay? So as we sow our thoughts, words, and our actions into the two separate fields, the the, the picture here is that they will repay us at a future time. So as we sow to the field of the flesh, there's coming a day when that field flesh is going to repay us with corruption. And then on the other hand, as we sow thoughts, words, and deeds into the field of the Spirit, the eternal Spirit of God is going to repay us at a future day with eternal life. This is the picture that Paul paints for us. Another way for us to understand flesh and spirit is which one are we endeavoring to gratify or satisfy? Okay? Are we, with our lives, by our way of life, endeavoring to satisfy, to gratify, and please the flesh? that is the old man, the old Adam, our unregenerate self, are we trying to please that one? Or are we trying to please, gratify, and satisfy the spirit of the living God who dwells within us if we are believers? Okay, the distinction between the flesh and the spirit. Third, note that these two paths have two totally different outcomes. Okay, by now it should be clear that those who continuously as a way of life sow to the flesh will end up heading for eternal corruption. For eternal destruction away from the presence of the kingdom of the Lord forever. That's what verse 8 in the first half says. On the other hand, 
those who as a way of life sow to the Spirit will one day receive eternal life and the resurrection life that God has promised to all those who belong to him. Let me put it this way. Or let, or sorry, let me put this all together then. Those who are characterized by a life devoid of the Spirit, okay, where the flesh is given unchecked reign, where the desires of the flesh are continually satisfied, where the flesh is coddled rather than crucified, those people will end up in eternal corruption. But those who are characterized by a life in the Spirit, a person who depends upon the Spirit for, for strength, who looks to the Spirit for guidance and direction, who puts to death the deeds of the flesh. And again, this, we're not talking about perfectly, but as the direction of one's life. If, if that categorizes, if that describes you, then we will end up receiving eternal life. Let me put it this way. Two totally different lifestyles will lead to two totally different destinies. Perhaps this quote is helpful. It says, sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. Okay? Paul's making this simple statement, claim, whatever you want to call it. He's saying that, hey, listen, you cannot go throughout your entire life sowing to your own flesh, going your own direction, ignoring the way of God in the gospel. You can't go throughout your entire life ignoring all of the God has said, said to you, all that God has made available to you. You keep walking in the flesh, and you cannot expect that if that is your way of life, that you will receive the eternal life promise for those who are walking in the Spirit. And to kind of tailor this to the Galatian situation, what he's saying is this. Hey, listen, okay, um, I know these false teachers have come in, and I know they've kind of distorted your understanding of the gospel, and I know that there are some of you in, this, in, in these congregations that are believing that if you do these good things, that you'll be more acceptable to God. And as a result of that, you've neutered the Spirit's work and, and in your life. And if you continue down that path where you're depending upon your own righteousness for your standing with God, and as a result of that, you've cut yourself off from the Spirit, and so the only thing that you have left is the flesh, and if you continue down that path without repenting, without correction, then you can be guaranteed that you're headed for eternal corruption. That's what Paul's saying. It's serious stuff. Paul wants us to understand that our actions and our lifestyles and even what we believe have consequences okay um we're going to move on to point two in a few moments but i just want to provide us with two clarifications okay uh the first one has to do with attention that you might feel as you read this text because over and over and over again in the book of galatians paul has made it painstakingly clear that our acceptance before God has nothing to do with what we do, but everything to do with what Jesus has done. We can be accepted by God because of what Jesus has done, not what we do. Right? That's, Paul's made that really, really clear. When it comes to our salvation, it is about what Jesus has done, not what we do. But there's a lot of doing in our passage, isn't there? If you look at, if you look at the verse, is 
Uh, verse 7 talks about sowing. Verse 8 talks about sowing to the Spirit. Verse 9 talks about not growing tired of doing good. Verse 10 talks, talks about doing good to everyone. So how do we put this together? At the risk of being simplistic, let me state it this way. God does not want us to do good in order to be accepted by Him. Right? But... If you are a person who has been accepted by God, then you are to do good. Let me just state that again. God does not want us to be accepted by him. But if you are a Christian, God wants us to do good works because we have been accepted by him. Okay? You give your children chores and you don't say to them, Hey, if you, do, if you take out the trash and uh, make your bed and run and get me a Starbucks, you will be my child. Right? Um, they do chores not in order to be your children, but because they are your children, right? And it's the same thing in the Christian life. But there's an additional element of being adopted into God's family because it's not just an external thing. You see, when you're adopted into God's family, God gives to you a new heart, a new nature, a new identity, a new set of desires, and he even gives to you his Holy Spirit to come and dwell inside of you. And so now what happens is that we are both able and willing to do what God wants us to to do, okay? Let me put it this way. The Christian life is not just a ticket to heaven, but the Christian life is God coming into your life and absolutely transforming you from the inside out through the course of your life. Listen to me. If God said to me, Utah, based upon your faith in me, I will save you, see you in heaven in 60 years or whatever, right? If he said that to me, and he also didn't begin to change me, I would be a miserable man. Because I am an awful person with a a depraved heart, and I desperately need God to change me. And so it is with you. That that God, the the great promise of the gospel is not just that we'll be forgiven, but that we'll be purified and made clean and made more holy like Christ. And the Spirit is the one who enables us to do that. The Spirit is the one who comes and transforms us. And so we do good works, friends, not because we're trying to enter the family, but because we have already been adopted into the family. The second clarification is this. Um, Okay, so we're talking about the the path of the flesh and the path of the spirit. We're talking about eternal death and eternal life. Um, We're talking about ultimate realities. We're basically saying that there's two kinds of people and there's going to be two destinies for two totally different kinds of people. Okay, right? So we're talking about... um, I guess we can call it end time stuff. We're talking about ultimate things. But the question is, does, that, does that, any of that have to do with my life now? Right? Okay, I understand. I'm sowing to the Spirit. I'm sowing to the Spirit. If I keep sowing to the Spirit uh, because God's Spirit is dwelling within me, because God has saved me, then I'm going to head for eternal life. But does any of that have anything to do with my life now? And it does, because the sowing of reaping applies not just in the future, but in the here and the now as well. Perhaps we can think of it this way. Okay, and so when we're talking, when I'm talking to Christians here now, but uh, let's think of the son of a king, okay? The son of a king is the rightful heir to the throne, uh, and he is guaranteed all the privileges and rights of being a royal heir, okay? And that really can't, I mean, I'm sure um, students could find an exception to this, but um, um, there, there really aren't exceptions to that. The, the, the son of the king is uh, to succeed uh, his father in, uh, in the throne, Uh, And he's guaranteed that that can't be taken away from him. But if the son of the king 
chooses to commit shameful acts and do some foolish things, then, there's gonna, then he's not necessarily exempt from the consequences. Okay? And so it is for you and me who possess the spirit of the living God. Some of you may very well be true believers. You trust in Christ alone. You possess the spirit. And yet, if we choose to regularly sow to the flesh, then there's going to be consequences to that. Okay, let me try and illustrate that to, for us. Okay? If you sow seeds of anger and refuse to forgive those who have wronged you, it is not unlikely that you will become bitter and face relational problems down the road. If you sow seeds of impurity and sexual immorality, it is not unthinkable that you'll be found out, and what you thought was pleasure has now enslaved you. If you sow seeds of control and the need to have things go your own way, then you may leave a destructive wake in your workplace or at home. Right? And then just kind of going the other way. If you sow seeds of laziness and sloth, then you might end up losing your job. And the Bible actually warns you that you might not eat. If you sow seeds of self-glory and self-elevation, then you will likely end up being miserable because the praise of others does not satisfy. Okay? And so this principle of sowing and reaping, um, we need to take heed to it because our actions do have consequences, not just for the life to come, but even in this life, and even for those who possess the Spirit. We can possess the spirit and refuse to fight the flesh and in fact give in to the flesh and call to the flesh and then we will face the consequences of those things. And so believers take heed. Let's also consider the alternative and for that we're going to talk about blueberries. Okay, so let's consider blueberry picking. Okay, um, so you drive to the farm, you pay the fee, uh, you grab your baskets and then you head over to the blueberry farms or the blueberry fields I should say. And um, the whole purpose for why you're picking blueberries is because you're going to go home and mom's going to make a pie. I like pie. Um, And hopefully there's vanilla ice cream in the fridge as well. So let's think of the pie as sort of the Christian's ultimate reward. Okay? the, The pie is the Christian's ultimate reward that he will receive in the future at harvest time. But we all know that when you go fruit picking... There's sampling along the way, isn't there? Yeah. And, um, and so while your ultimate enjoyment of blueberries is going to be in the future when mom makes that pie, right, you're still going to enjoy blueberries along the way. And so it is with the Christian life. The fullness, the entirety of what we will experience because we're God's children, because he has promised us that we will enter into his eternal kingdom, that's future. Okay? That is future. Jesus will return to this earth. He will establish his forever kingdom. It will be characterized by peace and righteousness. And we will be allowed entrance into it, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us, because the king has died for us. And we will be in there with resurrected bodies. There will be no pain, no crying, no mourning, no death, no sin. And we will be allowed entrance into that kingdom forever and forever. And it will be at that point that we can eat the pie. Okay? But... That eternal life that we, we will experience in full then, we can experience in part now. And I think the teaching of the scripture goes like this. Friend, you will be the most contented. You will experience the greatest peace. You will experience the most beauty and blessing as you submit yourself to the Spirit's rule in your life. You see, because eternal life is not merely about duration, but it's about quality of life and 
For those of us who have believed in Christ and who possess the Spirit, we are invited into the eternal communal relationship with God, not just then, but even now. And that begins to change us. And so friends, this is not meant to be a sort of like slap on the hand sort of instruction. This is meant to be an invitation. An invitation to live in the way God intended for you to live and to live life in a way that is best for you. And God was so committed to giving you this life. Listen to me, this is what he did. He sent his son to this world to die an awful death by crucifixion in your stead and in mine. And on the cross, in his flesh, Jesus shed his own blood to inaugurate the new covenant. Okay? He did that for you and me. But not only that, God generously and freely gives his Holy Spirit to all who would believe in what Jesus has done for us in his death and in his resurrection. God was so committed to giving us the abundant life that he crucified his son in our place so that he would inaugurate the new covenant by his blood and in inaugurating the new covenant, all who would believe would receive the Holy Spirit. And do you want to know what torpedoes that? Works-based religion. And that's why Paul is so vehemently opposed to anything in your heart and mind that would say that I can do X, Y, and Z in order to improve my standing with God. All of that I've just talked about, that we're severed from that if we rely on our own works in order to be accepted by God. So friends, let us live it this way. God has given us his son and he has given us his spirit so that we could experience the life that we were always meant to have. Life in a right relationship with him and life in loving relationship with one another. Friends, let us submit ourselves to the spirit's rule and guidance in our lives. The importance of the spirit. It's a strange thing, you know, like when we hear about this goodness and, this, and the joy of all these things, we read about the fruit of the Spirit, and who would not say that they want those things? It's a strange thing that we wouldn't always continually, regularly give ourselves to the Spirit's influence in our lives, isn't it? So why is it then that we don't always regularly and continually give ourselves to the Spirit's work in our lives? And part of the reason for that comes in verse 9, and with this we move to our second point, the practice of Spirit people. The practice of spirit people. You see, you and I, part of the reason why we don't always give ourselves to the work of the spirit in our lives, we don't always walk in step with the spirit, is because we grow tired. Do you see that in verse 9? Think for a moment why someone might tire of doing what is good. This seems like a strange thing. Why would anyone in the world, particularly a Christian, tire, get tired of or become discouraged of doing good? Well, I can list a few, few reasons. We all, we all know that loving one another, which is kind of the prime fruit of the Holy Spirit, um, that, that, that can be difficult, especially to love people well, right? Uh, loving people when it's inconvenient, loving people when it costs us something, uh, loving people when it's met with ingratitude, loving people who are needy. Lo- um, it can simply be hard to love people well, and that's one of the prime fruits of the Holy Spirit, Um, Not only this, but theologians have typically pointed out how there are three enemies of the soul. Uh, The devil, okay, who is the prince of the power of the air. He is the god of this world, and he and his minions are 
uh, tirelessly at work to oppose us, and particularly to oppose the Spirit's work in our lives. There is the world. The world is not planet Earth, but it is the system of this world which by and large opposes God and His people and His standards. So the world's working against us as well. And then there's also our flesh. And so there is a sense in which, um, yes, there are enemies out there, but there's also an enemy in here. The flesh, the old self, the, the one who wants to do all of the carnal sort of bad things that are listed in Galatians 5, 19 and onward. And while all of these things are working against us, and more specifically, working against the Spirit's work in our lives, we can grow weary. Okay, not to mention our own weakness. Um, not to mention our, our love for comfort, particularly here in the West. Our fickle nature. And then, and then not only that, right? We're talking about loving people. Um, okay, okay uh, what about like, my own problems? You know, I have my own weights to carry. I have my own little, you know, like people, in my small circle of people to take care of. Like, how can you call me to do good to everyone? And all of this can lead us to become weary. And Paul does something quite interesting in this section, right? Like, he, he doesn't appeal to kind of like the goodness of doing good, but he appeals to the harvest that is coming for those who would continue to do good and not give up. Do you see that? Um, to put it into modern language, Paul is telling you, you who are tired, discouraged, and tempted to give up, Hey, listen, sowing to the Spirit and loving other people, particularly in the community of the church, it's going to be worth it in the end. You're going to reap a harvest at its proper time. There is a God-endorsed purpose to the good that you are doing. Your efforts are not in vain. They are not going unnoticed, at least by God, and you will reap a harvest in God's perfect timing. You see, Paul offers to believers something that the world cannot offer to its own. You see, because the, the world might see a people who are biting and devouring one another, who are not getting along, and perhaps they might slap them on the wrist and say, hey, be kind and get along. But what an empty, what an empty imperative, what an empty command. Paul says, yes, keep doing those things, because it's going to be worth it in the end, and I can guarantee that to you because I serve a God who is in control of all things, including the future. Your efforts may go unnoticed by others. Your work might seem like it's pointless. Your generosity may be met with ingratitude. You may even encounter opposition in all of this. But as you faithfully sow to the Spirit and minister to others in reliance upon the Spirit, it is going to be worth it. Okay, what have we talked about? We talked about airplanes. We talked about blueberries. We talked about chores. Let's talk about um, uh, a marathon, okay? Um, so let, let's just imagine... Um, that all of us are running in a marathon. And I imagine that in a room of this size, that there are some of you who are on the verge of, uh, of giving up. You're discouraged. You're weighed down. Um, the cares of this world and the burdens of your life are just too much to bear. And you, are, you, are, you have grown weary. Okay? All of us are running in this race. Okay? Back to the illustration. And some of you have literally walked to the side of the track, and just sat down. And you're tired. And, and, and you're weary. And you're, and, and you're tempted to give up. Okay? And it is as if the Apostle Paul, through Galatians 6-9, walks over to you, 
kneels down beside you, takes you by the hand, and says to you, hey, listen, I know that you're tired. I know that you're discouraged. It would be very easy for you to give up. But the finish line is just beyond the horizon, and it's all going to be worth it in the end. And one other thing that you might not have thought about um, you don't have to run this race alone, you see, because God has given you His Holy Spirit to energize you, to empower you, and to encourage you. And not just His Spirit, but He has given you His people. He has given you His church to care for you and to run alongside of you, and so you're not alone in this. So keep running. Okay? Paul says... Do not grow weary of doing good, for in due season you will reap if you do not give up. Keep running the race, Christian. Keep sowing to the spirit believer. Keep doing good unto others, you who have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within you. Friends, I think that sometimes we can wrongly conceive of the Christian life like a sprint rather than a marathon. Um, we imagine the Christian life to be always exciting and ever full of hype, kind of like a perpetual like concert or like a sports game or something like that. Um, but in actuality, the Christian life is more about ordinary faithfulness in the small and mundane aspects of life over a lifetime. And that is why the Apostle Paul has to remind the believers in Galatia and us as well that we not grow tired to the point of giving up. Okay? It's a marathon, not a sprint. Let's close by talking about verse 10. In verse 10, Paul arrives at the closing exhortation to kind of this entire section. Um, perhaps we can think of it as the arrow to kind of the arrowhead, the, the target to which Paul is aiming, the thing towards which Paul was marching. Paul saying, in light of all that I have said, let's be sure to do this. And the command is simple but convicting. Let, let, let me read it in verse 10. It's, he's saying, In light of all that I have said thus far, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let me kind of unpack that for us just a little bit. We are to help and serve those around us in such a way that we are doing them both temporal and eternal good. We are to help those who have legitimate material and financial need. We are to fulfill the law of Christ and through love serve one another. These, and these loving good deeds are to be the outward expression of our faith in Christ and the Spirit's rule in our lives. We are to walk by the Spirit and to be led by the Spirit and all that this entails in our relationship with others. And I, I want you to notice and hear something here. Paul is not calling us to some sort of a social activism, Right? He's not saying something like, you know, hey, go and end, you know, poverty in a certain region of the world. Um, go and, you know, build wells in this part of, you know, said continent or something like that. Um, what, what he's calling for here is for ordinary and normal Christians, all Christians, in their ordinary and normal lives to live a lifestyle of caring for those around them because they are allowing the Spirit of God to work in them and to guide them. Does that make sense? I mean, social activism, there's nothing wrong with that. But this is something that he calls all Christians to do. And it's something that he calls all Christians to do in the course of their ordinary, normal life. To be doing good 
to and caring for those around them because the Holy Spirit of God is at work in their lives. But in doing good to all people, Paul wants us to prioritize a particular people. Look with me there. He wants us to prioritize the church. And notice with me how Paul refers to the church. He says the household of faith. That might come as a shock to some of us. Um, I'm sure if somebody else in the world, uh, like out there heard that, like an unbeliever heard that, they might not like that. It's like, well, that seems a little bit exclusive to me, doesn't it, to you? Um, but I think here's Paul's reasoning and thinking. He calls the church the household of faith. So, here, so, so, so I think Paul's thing is do good especially to believers because they have the same faith as you. Do good especially to believers because they are um, the rightful heirs to all of the divine promises like you. Do good to, especially to believers because they possess the same Holy Spirit as you. Let me put it this way. The, the greatest commonality and the deepest unity that we have with other people is with other believers. Okay? Um, there's a sense in which a father could say, I love all of the children of Maple Avenue Baptist Church. But I especially love my son. You know? And I think that's what Paul's saying. He's like, okay, yeah, we, can, we love all people, but we especially love our own. We especially love our people. They believe in the same Christ. They possess the same spirit. Uh, they are headed for the same eternal kingdom and fulfillment of the same divine promises. Okay, let me put it this way. In an ultimate sense, okay? Um, you don't have to be awkward about this. But okay, but the person sitting beside you in the pew, okay? Uh, let's, say for, let's, say, let's suppose that you don't know them, but let's also suppose that they are a believer. You have more in common with that person than, um, than your unbelieving coworker, unbelieving friend, or even unbelieving relative. Okay, I'll talk a little bit more about that, but how might we practice some of these things? I've just kind of jotted some things down. Uh, they're not meant to be a checklist to make you feel guilty. They're just kind of meant to be something to kind of maybe jog your mind and your thinking in these ways, because I do think we need to be proactive, okay? You don't have to do all these things, okay? Hear that from me? They're just some ideas of, of how you might apply this verse. We can show hospitality to one another and have others in our homes for a meal, not just once, but as a way of life. We can cross social barriers by interacting with those who are very unlike us. As we are able, we can endeavor to help those who are in need financially or material. We can also help in practical ways like moving or shoveling snow or bringing a meal. We can have a forgiving spirit refusing to hold grudges and be bitter towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can utilize our time and gifts to serve in the church in order to fill a need and to edify the body. We can refuse to judge one another for preferential choices... We can turn conversations towards the spiritual and the things of God so that we are talking about the things which are most important. We can encourage one another, and we can be praying for one another. Okay? And the list could go on. I'm sure we could come up with a list of, you know, 2,000 things to do if we had enough time to do it. But um, it's not meant to be a checklist and say, well, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and so I'm a good person. It's also not meant to be a checklist to say, well, I haven't done this, and I haven't done this, and I haven't done this, and therefore I'm a bad Christian. Okay? Um, it, it's simply to say this, that all of us should understand that this is what spirit people do. We are zealous for good works, and we are actively seeking ways to do loving good to those around us because the Holy Spirit of God has come to dwell within us. And friend, I want you to see how this is good for the world, okay? 
when Jesus was here, everywhere Jesus was, the kingdom was. Everywhere, so, so Jesus, for example, performed miracles, I think, to show, amongst other things, that in his coming kingdom, there will be no sickness, and there will be no death, right? So, so wherever Jesus was, was a picture of the coming kingdom. And how God has designed it is that we, as the church, are supposed to be a picture of the coming kingdom in Jesus' absence, physical absence, when we are sacrificially giving our, ourselves away for the good of one another, not perfectly, but as the direction of our lives, and we all of a sudden become a compelling community to those looking on, to those looking in. Because nowhere else in the world are you able to find love like this. Love which cares for those who are unable to repay. Love which cares for those who are entirely unlike us in terms of age, race, culture, political views, economic and social status. Love which continues on even when we have grown weary and tired. Love which does not give up on those who have deeply wronged or hurt you. Love, get this, which is doing good, not to prove anything or look better than the next person, but a love which flows from the Spirit's good rule in our hearts. You know, before as a Christian, and even now I can be, but I, I, I was just a major jerk. Um, I would often be called into the principal's office for bullying uh, and if you met some of my classmates that I kind of grew up with in, in Banff, they would attest to you of my unkindness and my lack of love. Um, but there would be the odd time that I would choose kind of to be nice to people, and it felt good. And so I was kind of like, well, why don't I be like this more often? Like, I could be kind and gracious in my tone, and, and I could be helpful towards others. You know, it feels good. Um, but sooner or later, um, I would be back to my old jerkish self, unkind, selfish, and harsh. And and I think, you know, it wasn't necessarily that I was thinking in this way then, or maybe I was, but, but now I know for sure that the truth of the matter is I, I couldn't do it. I could not love people in the way that I wanted to uh, because I did not possess the spirit of the living God. And so all I had was the flesh. And so even if I wanted to be kind and nice to others, it would only last for a moment. And I wonder where you are at this morning. Perhaps you have felt this, that you actually want to love other people, but, you, but on, in your most honest moments, you know your own impotence, your own inability to love people like this. You want to be a person who does good to other people, but you, but you can't. So let me invite those, that is you, to come to Christ. Throw away your own righteousness and cast yourself upon the mercy of Christ who will give to you his, his righteousness. And when that happens, then God will also give to you his Holy Spirit, which will finally enable you to do, to do the good and to love others in the way that you desire to do. Friends, this is why Paul wrote a letter and not a post-it note. It was so that we at Maple Avenue Baptist Church could truly understand the right gospel, a gospel which says that you and I can be accepted by God and before God based on what Jesus has done and not based on anything that we have done. Paul wrote the book of Galatians so that we would not be duped into thinking that we can improve our standing before God based on upon anything that we do. 
And Paul was supremely concerned about that because it is only by trusting in Jesus alone that we can have the Spirit. And Paul was concerned about us receiving the Spirit because he wanted us to be this loving, beautiful community under the headship of Christ but empowered by the Spirit. Paul wanted a kind of community here at Maple Avenue Baptist Church that only the Spirit can produce. You see, because when the Spirit comes to indwell a people, the intended outcome and result of that is this beautiful community where people are habitually, enduringly, and sacrificially giving themselves for the good of one another, not to prove themselves, not to show off their goodness, not to be better than the next guy, but simply because God in His great mercy has accepted us in Christ and has given us His Spirit so that we are able to live this kind of a life. Okay, let's pray together. Father, I am so thankful for Jesus, so thankful that my sins are wiped away uh, and they're gone forever. I'm so thankful for the Spirit which, uh, who transforms me into the image of Jesus. Uh, and I'm so thankful for the church that you have given us uh, other people to do life with, to walk alongside of, and to love and to care for. I pray, O oh God, that you by your Spirit would produce in us and amongst us this kind of a community where we truly and sacrificially and as a way of life care for one another. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.